Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming back to the show. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast. As you know, every other week, we on the podcast take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Things seem to have quieted down a bit since our last podcast where we discussed the events in Charlottesville. My girlfriend told me I sounded a bit stressed in the introduction to that show, and of course, she, as she often is, was right. At the time, the reason I was stressed was because the First Amendment My dear, dear amendment was taken in an unjustified public relations beating. I say unjustified because the First Amendment was not the cause of the violence in Charlottesville. Violent criminal actors were the cause. And as I've said on this podcast before, it's important for us to recognize that what distinguishes liberal societies from illiberal societies is that liberal societies, we use words, not violence, to settle our disputes. Violence is punished. Speech is permitted. And who is responsible for punishing violence and permitting speech? Law enforcement, the police. And unfortunately, law enforcement seemed incapable or possibly unwilling to do its job in Charlottesville. As my colleague Robert Shibley wrote for USA Today, when the authorities simply stand by and let political violence occur, even in the hope of the conflict somehow de-escalating itself, They send the message that both sides have a free hand to violently attack their opponents. This, of course, only emboldens violence. After all, we know that behavior that gets rewarded gets repeated. But this violent response to speakers isn't entirely new. We also saw the police stand down during the violent protests of Milo Yiannopoulos at the University of California, Berkeley, back in February. The protests resulted in a sudden cancellation of his speech. But now, after Charlottesville, we're seeing government institutions across the country deny groups their constitutional rights to assemble over vague, unenumerated concerns of violence. So essentially, here's how it's working. Some individuals attending or protesting a couple of speeches or rallies have become violent. In some cases, police have done very little to stem the violence, either because they have stand-down orders or because they're overwhelmed. It's hard to say. But people have gotten hurt. And the constitutional rights to free speech and assembly have gotten blamed as a result, not the violent actors. And government institutions are using these incidents as vague justifications to deny people their constitutional rights moving forward. This must stop. We, including the police, must do everything to punish political violence and protect our basic constitutional rights. Thankfully, some pressure was released late last month after a rally in Boston went off without any high-profile street brawls between ralliers and counter-protesters. Concerningly, however, that only happened in part because the police so thoroughly separated the two groups that one, The protesters couldn't hear or really see the ralliers. And two, the rally was small, in part because many of the ralliers couldn't reach the gazebo where the rally was being held due to police barricades. (sighs) Just as denying permits for rallies over vague concerns of violence can't be the solution, neither can this. As Fire co-founder Harvey Silverglate wrote in an op-ed after the Boston event, they made a desert and they called it peace. But I'll end my fulminations for now. As I said, things have quieted down. There's been a backlash to the backlash against free speech, as there always is. And I'll knock on wood that things remain quiet, but I'm not optimistic. The new school year is starting, and some controversies are already beginning to develop. So stay tuned. I'm sure we'll talk about them on this show. But speaking of this show, let's get on to today's show. Our guest today is evolutionary psychologist and author Jeffrey Miller. He's a professor at the University of New Mexico, and he has two fascinating pieces published in Quillette that make the neurodiversity case for free speech on campus. What does he mean by neurodiversity? 
give me a second here to walk you through what he means because it's a bit complicated. According to Miller, at least 20% of people suffer from a mental health disorder such as autism, ADHD, Tourette's, PTSD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, etc., etc., etc. He claims this is one of the largest minorities on any given campus. He argues that these quote-unquote neurodivergent individuals are not like their quote-unquote neurotypical peers. Their mental processes are different, and that's okay. These atypicalities often result in different ways of thinking and brilliant discoveries. And given the biographical records, for example, people like Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Nikola Tesla, and Bertrand Russell all were suspected of being on the autism Asperger's spectrum. They all had mental health disorders. They think different, as Apple co-founder Steve Jobs said. For centuries, colleges and universities have welcomed these neurodivergent individuals. They push knowledge forward. Sometimes they come up with quirky ideas and slide down rabbit holes, but often they provide brilliant new insights. Isaac Newton might have been obsessed with alchemy, for example, but he also gave us the laws of motion, so the trade-off is probably worth it. Now, according to Miller's new theory, a problem has arisen because neurodivergent people are expected to abide by vague, overbroad, and as you know if you continue to listen to this show, often unconstitutional campus speech codes. These are codes that ban, for example, quote-unquote, objectionable objects, or, quote, degrading pictorial material, unquote, or unwelcome jokes. You see, according to Miller, one common characteristic of those on the autism spectrum, or with any other mental health disability, these neurodivergent people, is that they often seem to have a hard time understanding social norms, and sometimes they say inappropriate things. They're often unable to predict or have theory of mind with 100% accuracy for how their speech and ideas will be interpreted by their peers. One way they account for this is through building so-called mental models of appropriate behavior. However, building that mental model sometimes entails engaging in social missteps and correcting oneself. To put it another way, sometimes it entails violating a speech code prohibiting unwelcome jokes. However, these speech codes don't account for these unintended and innocent missteps. But to make matters worse, given the vagueness of these codes, it's hard for neurodivergent people, even after they've built a mental model, to predict what will be actionable under the code in the future. If he or she gets punished for an unwelcome comment or joke to someone about Black Lives Matter, for example, will they similarly get punished for an unwelcome comment or joke to another person about the alt-right? Miller's theory is a complicated one, but the sum of it is this idea that vague, overbroad speech codes might present so-called disparate impact concerns for people with diagnosed mental health disabilities, who are, in fact, a protected class under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And what's more, the chilling effect of these codes might be resulting in a broader cultural concern of our losing some of the brilliant eccentricities and insights of the world's neurodivergent. Now, Professor Miller spoke with me over the phone recently to break down his new and novel thesis, and I press him on some of the difficult questions it poses. For example, the question of whether medicalizing the free speech debate anymore will backfire. Before we begin, I want to quickly preface this conversation by saying that Professor Miller is not a lawyer. And none of his speculations in this podcast about the Americans with Disabilities Act should be construed as legal advice. With that out of the way, let's get out into the show. Professor Jeffrey Miller, thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Nico. It's my pleasure. So they, le- they say that there is never anything new under the sun. And we've been talking about free speech ideas for centuries at this point. But I read your recent article in Quillette, The Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech, and I thought to myself, there is something new in the world of free speech under this sun. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start here by introducing terms and concepts, because I think that's going to be very important for understanding your principal argument. So why don't we begin by having you describe 
what neurodiversity is, what it means to be neurodivergent, neurohomogenous, neurotypical, what neurominorities are. We've got all this, this neuro language floating around. Yeah, I mean, these terms, honestly, they kind of bugged me the first few times I heard them, and I thought they were all, all kind of pretentious and sciencey. And then the longer I kind of lived with them, the more value I thought they, they actually have. So neurotypical would be people with a normal brain, like kind of typical personality traits and, quote, mentally healthy, and they don't have any big personality quirks or mental disorders. So that's neurotypical. And then neurodivergent would be pretty much anybody else, anybody with a diagnosable mental illness like bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, Asperger's, ADHD, PTSD, anything like that, or just anybody with kind of an unusual personality who's quirky or eccentric. So that's neurodivergent. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, that makes sense. And I do want to work through your essay or your two essays because you wrote a subsequent one called The Mental Mental Health Disabilities as Legal Superpowers. I want to work yeah. through these systematically because I think you tip your hat in the essay. You talk a lot about yourself in the essay and you mm -hmm. say that you are, you suggest that you are a more systematic thinker. And I think this essay lends itself to that sort of thinking. We'll, we'll, we'll be systematic, but try to keep it conversational. Of course. And, and you do, and you do. So let's start where, with where you begin, which is with a story. You talk about a young Isaac Newton, and you have him time travel to modernity and sort of look at college speech codes as they are exist and operate today. Uh, you provide some historical information about Isaac Newton here. You suggest that the biographical information lends itself to a belief that he was neurodivergent. That means he didn't have a brain that operated um, sort of at the top of the normal curve, so to speak, that he uh, was maybe a more creative, more systematic thinker than normal people. And you say that in this modern environment, he might have trouble. Why is that? Yeah, so, I mean, Newton was kind of neurodivergent in two ways. On the one hand, he was just a stone-cold genius with a super high IQ. That's obvious. But it's not really the high IQ that necessarily gets you into trouble with popular belief or the powers that be. It's the other kinds of neurodiversity. I like the fact that Newton seems to have been on the autism spectrum, eccentric, weird, quirky. He would develop these obsessive fixations on all, all, all sorts of bizarre things like alchemy or predicting the exact date of the apocalypse. And he made enemies. He was blunt, and he was not an easy guy. So the problem is if you transplant him from 350 years ago to, say, modern Harvard, and you expect Newton to sort of do a well-behaved tenure-track professor gig. He is not going to do well under the current regime. The speech codes that Harvard imposed, which basically say don't be offensive to anybody, Newton would offend people from day one. And what do we do with that? Do we say, okay, Newton's not welcome in modern academia. We have no use for people like that. Or do we say, you know what, we actually have to wrap academia around the eccentric genius. We have to make it a support system for him or her. We have to make it, you know, value their eccentricity and turn it into knowledge. So, but this isn't just about Sir Isaac Newton. He is a case study here in this story that you tell. You say that ever since the Middle Ages, universities have nurtured people with unusual brains and minds. And it's those people that are often the ones, the neurodivergent ones are often the one that push the ones that push knowledge forward because they're not thinking like other people. Yeah, if you just read biographies of the great thinkers, scientists, um, scholars, uh, you know, humanities uh, critics, etc., they all have complicated lives and they make enemies and they have weird beliefs. And even before speech codes, they they often got into trouble. First in Devlin always getting into trouble. Bertrand Russell, likewise. Um, so, you know, what do, we, what do we do with that? This is a problem that affects thousands, if not tens of thousands, of researchers in America. And 
I think a lot of them are feeling this chilling effect where they think there's a fundamental mismatch between my personality and how my brain works and the way that society at large and my university operate. Well, you have a section here in your essay that, set, that talks about the neurotypicality assumption behind speech codes. What is this su- assumption behind speech codes that are used to censor or to regulate speech? The, the neurotypicality assumption, I think, is that these speech codes that, you know, are well-intentioned and they try to sort of protect people from discomfort, they're designed by normal brains, for normal brains to implement. And they assume that everybody who, you know, reads these speech codes will be able to understand them and sympathize with them and sort of sign on to them and be able to regulate their behavior, especially what they say in accord with those codes. That's an empirical assumption that that's possible, and I think it's, it's actually demonstrably false because there are a whole bunch of neurodivergent conditions that make it practically impossible for people to follow those speech codes accurately 100% of the time. And you, you provide some evidence to support uh the idea that there is this assumption of neurotypicality behind speech codes. You look at the speech codes themselves, which use vague na- language such as, you know, right, the regulation of offensive speech. Yeah. And you say that these speech codes presume an understanding of what's inside the current Overton window of acceptable ideas. You also say that they presume a theory of the mind that can predict with 100% accuracy which speech acts might be offensive to someone of a given protected or marginalized class. Yeah, they they sort of assume that you have um, pretty deep insight into other people's beliefs and desires. That's called theory of mind in psychology. And that's something that people with Asperger's and autism typically have trouble with. And the speech codes also assume a lot of um, sort of linguistic insight into how language and words operate, how euphemisms work. So that if the speech code says, um, you mustn't display sexually suggestive materials in your dorm room, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody with English as a first language and who is very sort of verbally astute might have a pretty good idea what that means. But somebody who's got um, various kinds of language impairments or is not good at sort of reading between the lines, like a lot of Asperger's people can't do very well, will read that and go, I don't need, what does that even mean? I can't connect that to anything specific in my experience. I can't anticipate what, you know, what I could display that would actually fit that or not fit that. So there's a burden of understanding that speech codes impose, and then there's a burden of self-control that they also impose. Well, one thing that you say that neurodivergent people do in order to navigate a world of ambiguity is they create a more holistic, they they take a holistic perspective at the world and take individual cases and build them into, how do you say it, sort of a system or a reasonable person or reasonable expectation. And one of the things you say in your essay is that a lot of these speech codes use subjective standards. One could argue that a reasonable person standard is a subjective standard, yeah. uh, but they don't even have that. The reasonable person standard in these speech codes is often gone, and they any individual subjective offense, for example, can be seen to be a policy violation. So your argument, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that neurodivergent people can't build these systems of understanding because there is no system that can be constructed if you don't have a large enough panel or group or population. Yeah, there's really three three different levels of the difficulty here. One is if you have Asperger's, it's hard enough to develop theory of mind about what the average person would be offended by, the reasonable person, right? Mm -hmm. Challenge number two is understand the whole range of people out there and what each little subgroup would be offended by, like what each racial or sexual group would be offended by, or what trans people or you know gay lesbian people would be offended by. And then the third layer of complexity is that there are internal inconsistencies hidden in the speech codes, like, for example, you're allowed to criticize the alt-right, but not Black Lives Matter, right? Or you're allowed to... Um, 
criticize patriarchy, but you're not allowed to question that there's a campus rape culture, right? And so to, to Asperger's or people who are high systematizers, they see these inconsistencies and they're like, I, I can't even figure out how to apply the speech code, even if it was applied, you know, just to the whole range of people, much less applied inconsistently in ways that are never stated and that are just implicit, like you need a complete model of, of like intersectionality theory to be able to understand what you can't say. So you argue that this vagueness, this lack of understanding of these codes is discriminatory. And I think that's the main conclusion of your article. In what way are these speech codes discriminatory? Well, they're discriminatory because they set up a set of rules and standards and expect everybody to be able to comply with them and understand them. But actually, empirically, clinically, people with various kinds of neurodivergent conditions can't realistically understand or follow these speech codes. So it's setting them up for failure, and that is disparate impact. It's, a, it's, a le- it's an illegal discriminatory outcome. If you have a speech code that's easy for the neurotypical to follow, but that's virtually impossible for the neurodivergent to follow. And you outline in your article a number of conditions that result in um, neurodivergent behaviors, either consistent chronic ones or uh, you know ones that exist in a short time frame become of some traumatic event. You talk about attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, Tourette syndrome, PTSD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and you list a couple other ones, and then you say together these mental disorders affect at least 20% of students, staff, and faculty on college campuses. So this isn't just a small subset of campus to whom this this affects. No, it's a it's you know one of the largest minorities on any given campus in any country. Um, so the percentage of people who would be neurodivergent broadly construed would be higher than the percentage of campus students at most American universities who are black or Hispanic or undocumented immigrants or whatever. So it's not a small minority, um, but it is the most heavily stigmatized minority, arguably. This, this argument poses a couple of challenges for us free speech advocates. Uh, or at least presents a couple of counter-arguments that anyone advancing this theory might have to contend with. One is the question of, you know, could these arguments be seen to create an open door for attacks on criminal law or other such laws, the idea being that if a person is neurodivergent, they couldn't be expected to fit or understand uh, regulation outside the campus context as well. I know that it, within criminal law, we have insanity defenses, but this, you're not really talking about insanity here. No, I mean, it's with, with a criminal law insanity defense, if I understand it correctly, it would be that there's such a profound inability to understand basic uh, morality, um, like deep morality, like does it, am I actually harming somebody? rather than kind of surface cultural morality, which is, do I offend somebody with my behavior? Those are very different. So, you know, it, it really takes an extreme degree of insanity to, you know, not understand the murder is wrong and that you shouldn't go around killing people. I'm talking more about what are the ideas you're not allowed to, to, to utter. Yeah, on a college campus where presumably ideas are of the utmost importance. Yeah. But I think there there is a legitimate issue that you raise, which is, look, you know, things are labeled mental disorders in the first place because they're inconvenient to others, because they create social friction and conflict. That's why they get medicalized. That's why they're considered an issue that needs treatment. And a lot of the friction that mental disorders create is through words and through people, you know, sort of being verbally inappropriate. So it's not surprising that mental disorders create this conflict with speech codes. On the other hand, I don't think 
that this argument gives you a free pass. Like if you're a sociopath and you have no empathy with others whatsoever, that does not give you a pass to go around, you know, getting up in people's faces and, and using fighting words all the time. But fighting words are already not protected speech, right? We already have legal mechanisms for saying, no, you really can't say that. And I think those exceptions to free speech are already pretty good at sort of drawing the line between, you know, things that only an insane person would say versus things that just a sort of harmless neurotypical person would say. And you, you, I'm assuming, would make the argument that those narrow exceptions are clear enough that they, a neurodivergent person would be able to understand them in a way that a speech code that prohibits unwelcome verbal behavior, degrading pictorial material, sexist comments, anything of that ilk would not. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you know, the, the exceptions to free speech, I think there are, I don't know, six or seven of them laid out in constitutional law, I think are pretty, they're at least a lot clearer. I think you know, most neurodivergent people would be able to understand like the fighting words exception. Don't get up in someone's face and say things that are so intentionally provocative that a reasonable person would lose their temper and try to hit you. That's something that even people with autism spectrum disorders start to learn by sort of sixth grade. Yeah, you you say you use a great word in this piece, exasperated. You say, uh, and and you cite an essay written by a Cornell student at, and he's on the autism spectrum, and he has he's sort of exasperated at trying to understand speech codes and how he's supposed to behave or speak in a society with, with these vague codes. Yeah, I mean, I got into this area partly uh, when I started working uh, on my faculty senate here at University of New Mexico, where I would just ask what I thought were innocent questions, like what exactly does this part of our speech code mean? Um, and not, not just playing dumb, but like genuinely curious about how people would explain it. And the typical response was, well, it's just obvious. And to you, it wasn't obvious. It was the exact opposite of obvious to me. Um, and the harder you push on issues like that, the more you realize people don't actually have a clear mental model of what they want to prohibit. They just want to be able to react to things that are offensive after the fact. It's it's really much more of a power play than it is a even a way to to prohibit certain ideas from being aired. Um, I think it's got a much more punitive intent, and that's why these things are so sort of intentionally vague. Do you have any concerns about medicalizing free speech debates any more than they already have been? Uh, to provide context to that, one of the things we're seeing a lot on college campuses right now is students um, claiming emotional and psychological injury as the result of speech. Uh, the, they're medicalizing it, so to speak. Your, your defense against that censorship here is also a medicalized defense. Do you have any concern about that? Well, yeah. It, it, it's what kind of led me to a few wakeless, sleepless nights thinking, is it worth making this neurodiversity argument? Because it does open some, some cans of worms. But I saw that the, the anti-free speech side was already so far down this road in medicalizing things and use sort of appropriating and misapplying concepts from my field, psychology, misapplying them in really dumb ways. I thought, I have to fight back using a somewhat clinical and, and legal strategy. There is a, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep peppering you here with uh, just questions about your piece or potential critiques they could have, because I do think it's very important and there's a very sound argument here, but we need to put up our defenses against um, yeah. the would-be censors. What do you make of a potential argument that because of neurodiversity and there is at least 20% of people on college campuses who are neurodivergent, that there is no such thing really as a reasonable person and that recognizing this neurodiversity eviscerates a reasonable person standard. I think 
it, it does challenge a reasonable person standard in the sense that I think sort of going into the future, law is going to have to struggle with neurodiversity and the recognition that there's not just one standard default reasonable person. There's actually not just several kinds of people, but several different kinds of reasonable people. Mm. What I mean by that, for example, is within their own world, people with Asperger's who are high systematizers and often quite logical are, in my view, among the most reasonable people who have ever existed. Right. But to normals, to neurotypicals, they can seem eccentric. People with Asperger's, though, the normals can seem often very unreasonable. Uh, likewise, people with a lot of different personality um, disorders and conditions can be seen as just different kinds of reasonable. Like, if you have um, fairly mild forms of sociopathy where you don't do a lot of intuitive empathy, but you can still function well, this would characterize a lot of uh, politicians, surgeons, lawyers. Um, those people can be very reasonable also, but just in a different way than normal. So I think the law has to cope with that somehow. Well, do you think one of the ways to cope with that is to ch change the definition, not change the definition, but change the words or phrases that are used? So maybe instead, because when I think of reasonable person, I think, it, and we're, if we're thinking about a normal distribution or normal curve to take, and I'm no, no, by no means an expert there, uh, you would probably be the expert there. You know, you have this sort of bell curve where, but within one negative one standard deviations, you have the average person. Mm -hmm. Now you can't really say a, a, that the average is the reasonable person because the, the, the opinions within a standard deviation could also be reasonable. Yeah. Um, you know, if we're looking at the normal curve outside of one standard deviation might be considered unreasonable, but how do we stretch this reasonable person or this average, uh, population average to account for people up to the extremes, for example, people up to that insanity defense that we were talking about in criminal law before, do we just relabel this reasonable person? Well, I think what I would love to see is law schools sort of addressing this issue and, and basically just saying, hey, guys, when we talk about the reasonable person standard, bear in mind that should include not just, you know, your neighbor or your uncle, but people who are high-functioning with bipolar and Asperger's and sociopathy and so forth. Just remember there is diversity out there, just as there's demographic diversity, just as you wouldn't want a reasonable person standard to assume a male brain rather than a female brain, right? Or to assume reasonable person equals white rather than black. You just want to keep the diversity in mind when you're thinking through, um, could somebody understand the speech code? Could they implement it? So moving on now from this theoretical perspective on neurodiversity and the challenges posed by speech codes to neurodivergent people, you present an argument for attacking speech codes, um, sort of a game plan for attaching speech codes with this theory and understanding in mind, and you rest upon the 1990 America's, uh, Americans with Disability Act, the ADA, to support this argument. You say that people diagnosed with diagnosed, and I think that's important to say here, diagnosed mental disorders qualify as quote unquote disabled people under the 1990 Americans with Disability Act and other federal laws. So any speech code at a public university that imposes disparate impact on neuro-minorities is illegal. Where, yeah. where, where did you get that idea and how did you begin to formulate it? Well, where did I, uh, I can't totally remember where I got the idea, but I've been thinking about this neurodiversity stuff for a while. And then um, I think I, when reading some of the um, sort of autism rights movement literature, there was some mention of ADA um, accommodations and the way that you could sometimes get things explained more clearly if you had uh, diagnosed autism spectrum disorder. So I thought, well... 
I wonder if that's sort of a legal lever that free speech advocates could use. And this, this piece was kind of called to arms to say, if you have a diagnosed or diagnosable mental disorder, consider using a strategy kind of on behalf of everybody else to challenge um, speech codes. And, and you did, you yourself are not a lawyer, but you did consult with lawyers about this argument, uh, including full disclosure, uh, some of my colleagues here at FIRE. And what did they make of it? They thought uh, it was interesting. They hadn't heard about it being done before. They thought it, it might be a novel way to approach this. And they, you know, they weren't totally sure it could work sort of all the way through litigation. But that's not really the point. I, I'm not calling upon thousands of, of you know, Asperger's students to, to litigate for the next three years. I just want people who are in this situation of like the neurodivergent can't understand or follow speech codes make a fuss about it challenge you know your university talk to your ada coordinator and your office opportunity and your administrators and just sort of push them on this and i think if enough people push nobody probably even has to litigate because the administrators should realize quite quickly oh my god we've got no defense against this yeah, illegal discrimination, and and we we never thought about it from this perspective. Because federal law does qualify discrimination against mes- mental disabilities as actionable discrimination, you say that universities are required to make reasonable modifications in their practices, policies, and procedures, and to provide auxiliary aids and services for persons with disabilities, unless doing so would quote fundamentally alter unquote, the functioning of the university or impose undue financial or administrative burdens on the university. But you say that the university can't just be expected to know about your disability. So the first thing someone who is neurodivergent with a medical diagnosis must do is let their university know about their um, disability so that they have a chance to address it. Yeah, you have to at least speak up with an email to your ADA coordinator and explain, here's me, this is my role in the university, faculty, staff, student, whatever. I have this diagnosed condition. I don't understand these parts of the speech codes. You know, I need help. Uh, please get back to me ASAP. Um, and just that one email will, will probably create, you know, a flurry, a snowballing effect of other emails among administrators where they go, oh my God, this has never happened before. What do we do now? And you say the the emails are important because in any potential legal challenge, you need to document the actions of the government agency you're interacting with. So it, for example, to improve that the uh, university didn't take your consideration seriously and didn't provide reasonable accommodations, you need to be able to show the steps that they went, to, went through in uh, thinking through or denying your request. Yeah, exactly. So what I recommend in, in the piece about this is, you know, your, your, your end game is, is not to litigate, but the whole way through you have to act as if every record of everything you do and say is going to end up being presented to the Supreme Court of the U.S. And if you go in with that mindset, the university will take you a lot more seriously they'll go, oh my God, they, they've got a really clean, well-organized record of everything they've asked for. And so what, what are neurodivergent people really asking for here? I mean, or what would you, in a position of a neurodivergent person using this strategy, ask for? Would you ask for a revision of the speech code, an eradication of the speech code, or would you even go beyond that and ask for different accommodations? I think what you would ask for in the first instance is just please explain what this speech code actually means. You need to translate it into language. I understand the way that um, a student who's blind would, would get a syllabus that's printed in Braille right, rather mm-hmm. than text. So it's just how do you make your speech code fit into my brain so I can understand it? The burden on the university to do that to make that accommodation. And once they try to make it, they'll quickly realize, wow, we can't actually explain what we meant by any of that. 
And then that might lead, hopefully, the ADA coordinator talking to a university council, university lawyer, and the council advising the president, actually our speech codes aren't defensible. We need to get rid of them ASAP. That would be the sort of ideal outcome. Now, you present a couple arguments or a couple challenges and arguments that the university might use to um, challenge a student who comes to them and asks for an accommodation of that sort. Uh, you, you know, rights can be in conflict. Uh, for example, at least statutory rights can be in conflict. For example, Title IX prevents yeah. um, uh, sex discrimination, for example, and a neurodivergent person who might have a one-off comment that is seen to be uh, verbally offensive in a sexual nature. We, we see the federal government imposing standards like that. Yeah. Um, you know, if a, the government has a standard that says any verbal conduct or speech of a sexual nature can be actionable under Title IX, but you also have this ADA requirement that someone who is neurodivergent is accommodated for, you know, one-off sexually offensive comments, uh, you know, how does a university reconcile that? Does it then look to the Constitution, which trumps any statutory rights imposed by the ADA or Title IX and say, well, you know, the First Amendment well, we, I, get, I guess I'm speaking as a fire staffer here and thinking how I would approach it. I would say, well, the first, the Title IX doesn't trump the First Amendment. But you, you do see there's a bunch of things and often contradictory things, which makes a problem for neurodivergent people. Uh, but it's co- a bunch of contradictory things to grapple with. Oh, yeah, that, that's a great point, actually. And, and I hadn't thought of it that way. That, you know, on the one hand, there's the Title IX that's been overapplied ever since the, the Dear Colleague letter a few years ago. On the other hand, there's the ADA. Those have equal um, legal force. Um, mm-hmm. And if they conflict, then who's, who's the tiebreaker? I think the Constitution is the tiebreaker. The First Amendment is the tiebreaker. Um, so the whole point of the ADA strategy really is to get the university administrators to realize um, there are other considerations beyond, let's say, just Title IX or their desire to, you know, minimize offense. And ADA really throws a monkey wrench in that whole sort of um, speech suppression campaign. And then hopefully the university lawyers would realize, well, we just have to go back to the First Amendment. That's that's the tiebreaker. That's dispositive. That's crucial. Yeah, but that might be an argument they have to make in court because if a Title IX complaint is filed against them and the Department of Education, the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Education tries to investigate it, uh, the the university will have to argue against federal guidance. And I guess in this case, they would ar- they would make a constitutional argument. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, you know, another potential hole in your argument that a university could exploit here is this escape valve in the ADA, which says that a university doesn't need to create an accommodation if it fundamentally alters the school's academic program. Now, uh, one thing I could see a school doing, you see this happen in the affirmative uh, action debates as well, is say that diversity racial, sexual um, diversity is a fundamental program within the university and that arguments for potentially offensive or neurodivergent speech s- violate that, that university's fundamental mission. Yeah, I could imagine they'd make that argument, but from, from my perspective, fundamentally altering the nature of, of you know, the university's mission you could you could counter argue that before the speech codes universities function just fine and you know people got educated they learned things um, they graduated all the normal functions the apple fell on Isaac News head right and and then speech codes came in but it it's not like you know grade point average suddenly suddenly surged or like um, everybody suddenly felt included, and it was sort of a 
you know, multicultural LGBTQ uh, wonderland of equality and harmony. That's not what happened. So um, I think from a legal and moral standpoint, it's really the speech codes that have failed to deliver on the sort of diversity and inclusiveness as promised, but they had this horrible side effect that they alienated the, the neurodivergent. And I don't see how you can argue for diversity as a fundamental value, but only demographic diversity, right? Not neurodiversity. And and that's more or less what you're arguing here is that neurodiversity is a form, perhaps maybe the only form uh, of ideological diversity. The idea being that it takes some sort of neurodivergence in order to create intellectual diversity or come up with new ideas. Yeah, I mean, another way to, to think about this is that, um, you know, ideological diversity, in a sense, is um, just a mild version of neurodiversity, or even mm-hmm. that, you know, if you make the argument that demographic diversity is important, um, because people bring new perspectives and knowledge and background and personalities, then even demographic diversity is is justified largely as neurodiversity. Moving forward, what are you hoping to do with this argument? You've put it out there. We're recording a podcast about it. Are you thinking of writing a scholarly journal article about it? Are you talking about it uh, with colleagues? What's the next step here? Well, I just, you know, had this idea and I wanted to throw it out there and see if it got any traction. And it seems to have gotten a fair amount of traction. I think a lot of people have read the neurodiversity piece and they're taking it seriously. And um, I really just want to connect the free speech debate to the neurodiversity movement and particularly um, the autism spectrum Asperger's movement. I think that's absolutely crucial here partly because so many of the people who have gotten in trouble for violating speech codes seem to be kind of somewhere on the autism spectrum. They're often kind of in the hard sciences, biological sciences. They're a little bit nerdy. They don't understand why they cause offense. And if, if those are the kind of you know, poster children of people who get in trouble for speech codes, that seems like a problem. It means an awful lot of people in the hard sciences and engineering you know, and biology are kind of running scared and probably feeling this chilling effect and thinking, is academia really the place for nerds anymore? A a chilling effect insofar as people who are neurodivergent won't speak out with their ideas as much as they might in an environment that accounts for their divergence. Absolutely. They'll feel a chilling effect in the sense that they don't even know what the rules are and they know there's a huge risk of offending people. They've seen the witch hunts. And so they'll sort of set their threshold for what they say on the really, on the really risk-averse side. Like, I'm not even going to say anything that I think might potentially be offensive. I don't know, but I've got to be risk-averse because I don't want to get in trouble like, you know, Tim Hunt or Brett Weinstein or, or um, you know, James Damore at Google or anything like that. So you, you might, these speech codes might, for example, to bring us full circle, censor Sir Isaac Newton's opinions about alchemy, but in the process, through a chilling effect, you might lose his laws of motion. Yeah, that's, that's the key thing. It's not that Newton's laws of motion would be offensive. It's that the kind of personality and genius that leads him to, to come up with those also lead him down many other weird rabbit holes, right, that take him far away from Overton window and what people consider acceptable. And those are the other things that are what he'd get in trouble for, um, the other eccentricities. And that's my concern, that if there's not a more general acceptance of neurodiversity, both legally and culturally, then academia is just going to drive away a lot of its most precious talent. 
Well, Professor Jeffrey Miller, I think we will leave it at that. Thank you so much for putting this idea out there. I think it will provide our listeners a lot of food for thought. It's a new argument under the sun, so to speak. And I hope others will give it a read and hopefully continue the conversation, I hope, in legal journals so we can see if it, it if this, this sort of legal argument holds any water. So thank you again for coming on the show. My pleasure, Nico. Take care. That was University of New Mexico professor Jeffrey Miller. His two articles in Quillette are The Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech and Mental Health Disabilities as Legal Superpowers. I encourage you all to give both of those articles a read. A quick show announcement before I sign off. We will be trying some new things here on the podcast very soon. And we have some new, exciting future shows planned, including a live event with Heterodox Academy in New York City in October. If you follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, you'll learn more about that event very soon. But we'll also be bringing some new producers aboard to do some in-depth reporting on a couple of stories we've had in the works for a couple of weeks, if not months at this point. So stay tuned for that as well. This podcast, however, is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak and to get more information about that forthcoming live event with Heterodox Academy, follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk. Or, of course, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org. Or, if you're so inclined, call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews help us attract new listeners to this show. And until our next episode on September 21st, I thank you again for listening.